welcome back to So I'm Writing a Novel. If this is your first episode, it's not a good one because it's the second half of an interview. <laughs> so I would strongly encourage you to check out part one or just keep listening and don't worry about it, man. Don't stress. So yes, this is part two of the interview with David C. Smith, which begins with him telling his take on the collapse of sword and sorcery in the 1980s, all the way through to his writing today and what has kept him writing through all these years. I don't see any need to say much else. You Patreon supporters know I loves you. And you people who ain't supporting the show on Patreon know that it's okay if you don't have the means, but if you do, gosh, I'd love you to consider it. Going over to patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. There's all kinds of goodies on there. You can read it on the website. Okay, let's go see what David has to say one more time. leap forward just a little bit. Now, sure. this is a question that could easily eat up a whole hour, but maybe sort of as concisely as you can. I would love to hear your perspective on the 1980s collapse of sword and sorcery. As someone being published in the genre then, what did it look like? And are there any lessons that cheerleaders of the genre like myself can take away from what happened? Boy, that last part, I'm not sure because a lot of it was out of our hands. Mm. And I'm aware that there are some very vocal fans of sword and sorcery at that time who call it the Cretaceous extinction event and, and blame feminist editors at the paperback houses for coming out and chopping the heads or other things off the guys who were writing sword and sorcery fiction. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. Again, it's like it's a it's a series of things that occur, and if you want to tell that story looking back, you can. But I don't think there's anything to support it. I, they're just they're just you know. Yeah. But there are trends in publishing, and I myself feel that, and this gets back to having Charles finally get into print with Imaro in 1981 or 82. Um, my I call them the three new Oran books, but they came out in 81, 82. Mm -hmm. Sonya's came out starting in 1981 through 83 or 80, I think 83. Amazon's came out. Uh, Zebra published the Ganji series by Ted Rapel, which is not as well known enough as it should be. But his character, I, I know Ted, we're friends in Cleveland, and his character is half Nordic, half Japanese, a samurai who's on a quest for the Deathwind of the Dun in Transylvania. It's just, it's just rip-roaring. It's just great stuff. Zebra <laughs> published that. I think by that time, they had got the Thieves World series going. Marion Zimmer Bradley had, you know, this, I'm, I'm remembering what the paragraph I typed in, in the manuscript. Mm. But she had started Sword and Sorceress. So it kind of felt like a moment that was kind of ready to happen with Sword and Sorcery that could have developed into maybe a new, several new, you know, areas or lines of exploration. When I finished writing the Oran books in 82, and then I sold a fantasy trilogy, which no one has ever heard of, called The Fall of the First World. It's completely different from what we think of as fantasy trilogies now. It was quasi-historical and ended up being the road not taken with fantasy trilogies. But that got published in 83, and I was exhausted by that. I had tried to write the three Oran books 
and the big books of the fantasy trilogy, which are twice the size of a regular novel, I'd crammed all that into like a year and a half, a year and three quarters of work. I was burned out. I didn't think I had a nervous breakdown, but I became very depressed. I know now that I've been clinically described or diagnosed as depressive in like half the world. So I'm sure that I was very depressed after that. So at the time that this so-called collapse of sword and sorcery happened, I was teaching English at a business school in, in Cleveland, you know, like a year or two later. So I wasn't really paying that much attention. What I knew was that Charles Saunders, we, we were friends, we corresponded, you know, his books were coming out. There's some other stuff there. But no, no new masculine sword and sorcery. What we were seeing was, I know it's feminist. I don't use it as a pejorative. I'm a feminist, all, you know, power. Mm-hmm. But there was a change in marketing because a new crop of editors came in. They were largely women. You know, Dick and I dealt with, with Susan Allison, who was at ACE in 79, 80, 81. And she didn't really care for some of the early Red Sonja novels. You know, I don't know what the problem was. She claimed she had to line edit them. She didn't care for them and whatever. So that kind of struck me the wrong way. It really pissed off Dick. And so Mercedes Lackey and some of these other writers, you know, Marion Timmer Bradley. Right. So there was a shift in emphasis on what we're doing, not with sword and sorcery now, but with fantasy generally. And to me, it was Tolkien-esque was the biggest part of it. You know, don't forget, there was sort of Shannara had come out and had been huge. So I know that some of the guys think that Knives Were Out for Carl and these guys who wrote the He-Man, hairy-chested sword and sorcery. My feeling is that, that that had played itself out. How often can you go back to the well with that stuff? Yeah. I mean, you just can't keep writing the same thing over and over again. A lot of the writers were writing the same, and the editors were buying stuff over and over again. Then it was time for a change. New writers were coming up. New editors were coming in. And even if there's a story that I I don't know who it was, but an editor was upset with Carl and said, we're not doing that woman-hating barbarian stuff anymore. I don't know if that's a true statement or whatever. You know, it it sounds a little rough to me. But there was a change in direction in in the markets. And that's what it was. When Dick and I were writing the Red Sonja novels, I still have these letters. We got letters from young women. And you can tell, man, these these are from 12, 13, 14-year-old young ladies. Thank you for writing Red Sonja. We are so glad to see a girl, you know, or a mm. woman, you know, in these adventures. And we were the first ones there, by happenstance, doing these strong women characters in novels. And, man, my heart sang. It's like, good, good. You go, girl. You know, I mean, this is wonderful. So it was there. It was there waiting to happen. And C.J. Cherry and and Mercedes Lackey and these other authors were there to get going. You know, so go forward with it. And if the change in editorship and publishing direction was such that now we know that it sells figures. We know that the Tolkien-esque stuff sells. We know what's coming on the horizon. And it's more of this kind of stuff. And we know we've had a good reaction when we have strong young women characters who discover that they're the the one who's going to save the world or whatever. Hmm. So that's where we're going to put our money. Those are the authors we're going to be hiring. Even if there was a sense of spite with some of the editors because they were tired of the hyper-masculine stuff, a lot of people were tired of the hyper-masculine stuff. I mean, 
times had changed. I don't think I was writing hyper-masculine. Yeah, and I mean, literally anything done over and over and over without variation, as you say, is going to... Well, exactly. Exactly. When I did um, the most hyper-masculine thing I ever wrote, I think, was um, Shadow Sorcery. It was published as um, Sorcery Shadow. Mm. And a lot of you, I don't know if you've ever read it, a lot of people really like that book. That thing is, it's huge in every direction. It is mythic. It is elemental and it's it's where he introduced the Akram, the barbarian character and this this witch woman that he meets and the sorcerer who, who confounds both of their lives and a, and a kingdom is at stake and there's storms at sea and there's sorcery and all this stuff and it's anyone else reading it would think it's a little over the top or whatever i think of it as emphatic mm. or it's operatic almost like a spaghetti western so it's a little hyper or manic or whatever, not to mock that aspect of the genre, but to say we can go this big. It's like the myth of Hercules. It's like we can go this big and the thing still doesn't break its bonds. This genre can contain stuff like this big yeah. and mythic and powerful. So that, that was an experiment. A lot of the stuff I just tried writing to see if I could do it. So it's it's a big thing I've asked you, like I said, but it sounds to me from what you're saying that at least it feels like the main reason that sword and sorcery maybe went into decline in the 80s was that people were had a demand for something and they wanted some variety. And overall, the sword and sorcery genre was not offering that something or that variety. And so, of course, the people would look elsewhere for it. I think so. Readership had changed. I remember someone at the time saying that a lot of what the male authors were writing then they moved on to science fiction. It makes sense. Okay. So, you know, they moved on to science fiction. If the, cause these would be professional writers. You know, I, I, I think I was professional in the sense that I got paid and I think the quality of the writing was there, but I never had the temperament to just say, I'll write anything for money. And that's my fault. I, I wanted to write what I wanted to write. So, but no, there was just, it was a change in direction. The winds. It wasn't 1965 anymore, or even 1975. Yeah. It wasn't. Well, it is. It is funny, you know. I mean, I've been getting to know sort of what the online communities are for sword and sorcery as I go around to try and promote this very show, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it is interesting. There are one or two, and this actually leads nicely into my next question. There are one or two who will look back at that period and they will. Well, they're the kind of guys you mentioned who will be like, well, you know, people will have the knives out for the fellas and all that nonsense. Sure. And I hear them talk and they kind of don't want to expand the audience and they don't want the stories to be very different. In fact, they tend to have a very reductive idea of what even Howard did. Sure. <laughs> so when they say they want people yep. to just do what Howard did, they're yep. not even meaning that. And I just, when I hear this, I always kind of think I don't engage because there's no merit in it. I always think, do you actually you like can't, this? You can't win that one. Yeah. Yeah. Do you actually like this? Because I don't think you like this. <laughs> <laughs> I think you like anything that gives you an excuse to uh, not have to grow as a person. <laughs> And you've put this narrative onto this genre. I, I, I think that's true. I think that's true. And I know, I know or know of, you know, one or two of the guys that I think you may be referencing. And they don't want to go past 1950 or something. <laughs> well, their idea of 1950, even because I mean that's the thing. They'll say, you know, ah, oh, women yeah, yeah, writing yeah. this stuff. And it's like, well, what about C.L. Moore, who was right there at the beginning? <laughs> like it just. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can't talk to them and you can't win it. They want a certain type of fiction, and my answer is. You have a certain type of fiction. It is there. No one's taking it away. Robert E. Howard wrote it. Fritz Leiber wrote it. It is there for you. And there are probably writers out there who are continuing to recreate that template or formula. I look at this stuff, and you do, and probably a lot of the people listening, as writers, as creative people. 
I just can't write the same thing over and over again. Yeah. It's not the pulp era. Maybe if I were being paid a penny award, I would do it so I could stay alive. But things are very different now. We're all, at least we're for a time, better educated than we used to be. And a lot of us are far more creative and aware of arts and culture and writing and media and stuff than we ever were before. Make use of that stuff. So do that. Yeah. Why not draw on these larger ideas? Why not? You know, and, and you mentioned about expanding the audience and people go, well, that means you're taking away my thing. No, no, no. Expansion means more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the, I, I, I made a comment one time online. There was a guy who had a website that's devoted to ma- masculinity or hypermasculinity. <laughs> and I said, my complaint about the women editors that came in and didn't want masculine fantasy is that these are probably liberal women, you know, naughty word, you know, liberal. And I said they should have been more liberal. And he wouldn't, he didn't care for that at all. But which I mean, open your arms wider. Yeah. Maybe there's a way we can have Charles Saunders continue to publish Imaro yeah. books. Maybe there's a way, if David Madison had still been alive, that David Madison could have continued to publish Marcus and Diana. In 1985 and 1987, and maybe there was a way to move it forward in that way. But it was, I think it just got to be too political or, or too emotional or something. But I, I know the type of guys you're talking about. Well, I mean, people use the word politics that way when they mean things that they don't agree with. <laughs> right. And, and actually, yeah, of, I think so. I think so too. Yeah. And I mean, I, I suspect we're just going to sort of happily agree with each other on this. So maybe this isn't the best question, but whatever, man. Yeah. You know, I uh-huh. feel like it's sort of sorcery a place for big ideas, you know, because. Um, and I think you've already sort of answered it essentially. Yeah, well, it is a place for big ideas and it doesn't matter. You know, I, I often cite with kind of a, a wry grin, Lynn Carter's introduction to uh, the six of the Lancer ones, uh, Conan the Buccaneer, yeah. where I don't know if he yeah. was playing up to an imagined audience or if it was his own ideas, but he just kind of says, you know, sword sorcery's just got to be pure escapism and there's no, no thoughts about um, theme or morality or whatever, man, just like a big sorcerer and a lady and a, you know, whatever. And <laughs> you get that, right? Then you get, then you get the grandchildren of that who are online complaining about, I don't want politics in my stories. I like writing stories that aren't about anything. Right. And then people, buffoons are buffoons. We don't need to, you know, go into huge detail on that. Sure. But I just think about, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I think about all that and what nonsense it clearly is. And then I think about reading your latest novel, as I had the privilege to do this week, Sometime Lofty Towers. Oh, some, oh my. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Listener, go buy this damn book. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, thank you. Wow. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I found it interesting because I enjoyed it as both reader and writer. And I um, get to that through my my little spiel here about big ideas and people who think there are no ideas and certain stories are buffoons because I, we're all human beings expressing ourselves through our stories. And that means our, our ourselves means our opinions sure. and our ideas. Like there's no such thing as, I mean, you know this, I know this, but I'm, I guess I'm just saying it to get it out there. Of course. And so the interesting thing about reading Sometime Lofty Towers is I could definitely see someone reading that as just like a straight you know, kind of revenge story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some guys getting cut in half and that's what I like, you know, and that's mm-hmm. fine. If that's what you enjoy, take what you want from it. Mm-hmm. But, you you know, I felt like it had a lot of really interesting ideas in it. And I thought that you expressed them very well and often very subtly. Thank you. Uh, and, woven, and still woven in with, uh, you know, that blood and thunder that uh, we often look for from this kind of thing. Yeah. There's like 50 things I want to ask you about that book, but I guess I'll start uh-huh. with this. Yeah. So yeah, like I say, I love to recommend it, whatever. One thing I really dug was how the protagonist, Hanlon, is an outsider twice over. 
having spent time living with both sides of the overall conflict in the novel, yet coming from a third people we never spend time with in the story, not even like a flashback. Right. You know, he's a proper outsider, which many I've spoken with uh, consider an essential quality for the genre. And it also helps sidestep the white savior pitfall so many stories broadly similar to Lofty Towers fall into. And so to my question, this genre has a history going back to its very beginning of creating analogs for real peoples, cultures, and ethnicities from history. As someone who's done this themselves many times, I would say skillfully, what are the best practices you would recommend to authors aspiring or otherwise? Do you mean to create characters such as that? Or, or just even characters or, and cultures. If you're trying to do something where you're like, basically, this is approximately, uh, you know, uh, ancient Babylonia, or this is approximately uh, the Benin kingdoms in, in what is now Nigeria, you know, especially as a white fellow writing these stories, you know, you want to you want to do something that evokes history and, and isn't just like an endless parade of Western European peoples. Right. But you also want to, let's say, be, uh, be respectful and, and still get some interesting specificity in there. And I felt like you really did that in this book. Well, you use the tools. They make you a writer in the first place. So you step outside yourself and you become a character, very much the way an actor would take on a role. So you use that skill set and you go for the fact that at some very fundamental level, we all have sympathy or empathy with each other. And that's what I'm going after. Now, where it becomes dicey is if you're too literal about the other if I were to write a story about a character who's in Benin or something, I would do a hell of a lot of research about people in Benin and who they are. And I, would, I might try to contact some writers there and say, look, I'm this old white guy and I'm taking the challenge, you know. What, what do you think? I wrote a novel years ago, this is pertinent, in which I tried to resurrect the sorcerer character of mine and I brought him into modern day Chicago. And... The sorcerer has these skills and he hires out as a hired gun. And so the opening of the novel is how he is hired by a black guy, an African-American in Chicago, to hurt the police detective who had made it his job to torture black suspects for 20, 30 years when he was running his precinct in Chicago, which is based on a real character. Now, I asked a co-worker of mine, a black guy, I said, Please read this. I don't want this guy to be a cartoon. These are real people. You know, these are black characters. And Tim came back with, in my world, I would do it this way. And we went through it so that it now sounds authentic. I was on the right track, but I'm not that person. Mm. So I'm open-minded. I'm sympathetic. I want to do the right thing. But there are details. There's minutiae that's going to sound right or not to people who've lived that life. When it came to sometime lofty towers and I was creating the Kiranji, as luck would have it, when I was at um, Howard Days in 2019, I made some new friends. I, I met some folks. And one of the men I met is named uh, Michael Araujo. He's from New Mexico. And Mike, his degree is in anthropology. And he and I totally agree with this perspective. In fact, another anecdote, I read a book by a guy who, who traced the history of the other capital O in mm. Western history and culture. And it starts with the Greeks, because for the Greeks, any civilization that was on the edge of their world, you know, was the other and was bad, but was less, absolutely less. And so the West picked up that bias 
And then we applied it to the Celts and we applied it to the Eastern Indians and we applied it to the Western Indians and the Indians of Brazil and everything. So I read this book and it's a fascinating book that the guy writes. And I mentioned it to Michael. He went, I just took a class from that guy <laughs> at the university. So I was like, wow, that's, that's serendipity. But um, when I finished the novel, I sent it to Michael and I said, you know, this is more your field than mine. I'm being as sincere as I can. I tried to step into their shoes, but I don't want it to sound false or like an old white guy pretending to be, you know, uh, um, uh, an indigenous person. You know, I want it to be respectful. And he, he mentioned a couple of tweets. He said, you did great. And one of them was more about style than anything else, you know. <laughs> so I mentioned, I thank him in the book and appreciate that. But yeah, do your research, talk to people, be sincere. Mm. The thing about overstepping and getting into what's it called? Um, Appropriation, maybe? Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. See, that there, there's a gray area there. And for instance, are we now going to have Leontine Price, who's a black woman, not do some of the great roles in opera? She's a black woman. I mean, is she not going to be able to? Wow, well, I, I don't know that anybody's seriously arguing that kind of thing. I mean, if if I may throw this out to you and, and get okay. your your take on it, sure, like please. Yeah, I'm taking like a your time here. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, this is wonderful. No, I'm happy to have it. Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, and this is just where I am right now at this point in time, open to new info, appropriation to me is essentially a shallow exploration of another culture where you're yep. just kind of taking a few surface elements yep. and sprinkling it like, you know, well, like sprinkles on top of your story, as opposed to, and, and, and often... Token, yeah. tokenism, I guess, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so that's to me the understanding. Whereas, like, say, you, what you're talking about, you were doing the research. Heaven forbid, talking to other people who <laughs> might be relevant to the story. <laughs> oh heavens, yeah. Why yeah, I, I mean, are you, have you heard the term or familiar with it at all? Uh, sensitivity reader. I have. Yeah, yeah. Publishers hire sensitivity readers now to make sure that some of the language doesn't offend or trigger on some. Well, yeah, and I mean, to it's it's not maybe a one to one analog, but I mean, essentially, that sounds like what you were doing with your stories that you just told us about. Yeah, you know, and yet this is one of those terms that the you know I don't like politics and my stories. You know, mm -hmm. guys will just get so mad about, and it's like we're right. literally just talking about speaking to human beings and doing research. Like if you were writing a story about um, mountain climbers and you ran it by a mountain climber, like. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. As a writer, if you're going to write about this material in the first place and introduce characters and cultures like this, I would think that you're going to be sentimental to some degree anyway. Yeah. So you're going to do your best. So that sincerity would come across. What you might do is make some dumb missteps or something. You're not going to use racist terms or anything, but you might make some missteps in terms of nuance or something mm. that people familiar with that culture or the history or the people or whatever would recognize immediately so you reach out and, and you have people help that to me that sounds like what sensitivity readers do yeah. as a writer you should already know not to go in this direction or that direction i mean why would you do that anyway yeah. but then there might be some way you have a little blind spot or something so have somebody point that out to you or call you out on it or whatever so we get the best story that we can for the widest number of readers well, exactly. Like, don't you want more people to love your book? <laughs> don't you want to not make any, have anyone who reads exactly, that book? Exactly. Exactly. You know, <laughs> who identifies exactly. with maybe an identity in it or an analog identity in it? Do you not want those people to enjoy it as well, or you know, not feel like kind of uh, made yeah. uncomfortable? Um, I don't know. It all seems like common sense, I guess. Eh? But then here we are. <laughs> well, there, there you go. It, it is common sense. What I find interesting is that you can pick up some of these old pulps from the '30s, hmm. but it's interesting to see those writers who would try to at least go halfway 
to deal with these matters. I forget there's a character in one of the, I forget who it is now, but he was in Adventure Magazine a lot. He's an explorer in Africa and whatever. And he has a character who's a black African, a native, quote unquote, whom he treats as an equal, like Tonto in, in the Lone Ranger or something. And we're so far away from that now that it does seem like tokenism or, or kind of like, you know, really? But yeah. they were sincere back then about it. I mean, they were they were really trying within the bounds of the way the culture was then and the boundaries of their own imaginations. They could only think so far, you know, the way they'd been taught to. Society hadn't advanced very far yet. So it's interesting to look back at people who were sincerely trying to do some things. And even if it looks kind of artificial to us now, actually, they were sincere in having this oh. black African sidekick to this guy. He, you know, he was really trying to do a good thing. I mean, while up in the present, why don't we keep pushing it further, you know? Exactly. Like, so hopefully when people are looking back at us, it won't be so bad, eh? You know, exactly. Yeah, you're, you're talking to the choir here. So, so just a little, little bit more here. Uh, we'll leap ahead because, like I said, I could ask you 50 questions about the book specifically. I really enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so glad you liked the book. It means a lot to me. Yeah, well, I mean, I I, uh, I don't know if we have room to get into it today, but I will encourage anyone who picks up the book, which I do encourage them to do, please go to the back of the book and read the interview with David, which uh, has the story behind the story. I greatly enjoyed that myself and found that it only added greater depth to uh, what I got out of the story. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I'll just, I'll just say that for now because I, I wish we had room for that. Now earlier, you you did actually speak to kind of the difference between, as you see it, heroic fantasy and sword and sorcery. You know, the sorcerer's shadow as opposed to Oron, for example. Mm -hmm. And then that same interview I just mentioned in the back of Sometime Lofty Towers, in the final question's answer, it was mentioned that Sometime Lofty Towers, as you see it, does not fit the usual sword and sorcery template. Why would you say that is? Because what we've inherited as the usual template is that cartoony template or, you know, thing that we've already discussed, you know, that the characters are one dimensional, that the, the hero is a rogue who goes out for something for himself. There's a beautiful babe. There's a monster or sorcerer. And we never try to expand beyond that. You know, when you get to the point, well, can sword and sorcery fiction ever expand beyond that my answer is how can it not i mean we're talking about stuff that has its roots in in gilgamesh and achilles and the iliad you know in in beowulf i mean if we're drawing upon that that sense of what life is like under these conditions and those cultures are open to it this is part of our heritage just as being human beings and maybe just being in the west one example I kind of go back to for people is, I don't, I don't know if you like Westerns or not. I came to appreciate Westerns, Western movies very late in my life. But in the teens and early 20s, so I love silent movies. There, there was a character in, in silent movies. He was a guy called, um, let me think, oh, see him. Tired. I'm going to think of his name. Oh, shoot. But he made Westerns where he was basically a good bad man or a bad good man. William S. Hart. And... I mean, he'd open a movie where he's killing a bunch of guys, and then at the end, he ends up doing something good. And Hart did that because he was reflecting on just how rough and raw a lot of the stuff in the West was. What gained more popularity with viewers in the 20s was Tom Mix and those type of more like kids type cowboys. You know, it's the guy and his horse and everything. And it's the same story over and over and over again. And it was that way all through the 30s. And if you want to close your eyes, and just watch the same movie over and over again, 
you could do that. Mm -hmm. Tim Holt and his dad in these westerns of the 30s and 40s. And it's kind of like you want to close your eyes and, and have one of these sort of sorcery he-man stories read to you. It's the same thing over and over again. Started the change with the movie Stagecoach in, in 1939, the John Ford movie. And in the 40s, we started to get some westerns that are kind of adult. And after the war, we started to get real adult themes in westerns, particularly like Jimmy Stewart westerns, where he's out there and he's trying to make friends with the Apaches and everything. And these were done with great sensitivity for their time. The ones that I like, and there's, I don't know if you've ever heard of a director named Bud Bedicher. He made very low-budget movies. And at the end of his career, Randolph Scott made six or seven movies with Bud Bedicher. Seven Men From Now, movies like this. These are all story with a capital S. I mean, this is a guy in the middle of a situation, like a Conan, and he's got to deal with it. And so that's the Randolph Scott character. And there are some elements in these things. You don't know, you don't really know where they're going to go. So they are not following the template at all. You know, <laughs> not at all, these Westerns. And when you get to the climax, sometimes there's kind of like shocking stuff that'll happen. Like in one of them, he fights Richard Boone. And he blinds Richard Boone, the bad guy. You know, it's like, boy, did they really do that? Did they go there? You know, so at the time, it's kind of like, you know, really kind of raw and shocking for that stuff. To me, that's what you could, you know, I've talked to Joe Bonadonna about this, my, my friend Joe Bonadonna, who's written this stuff. And it's like, yeah, those are good examples of what you can do when you open up a genre and you expect certain things and it's kind of, you know, and you expand the envelope. We still have a guy on a horse. The guy is still an outsider. Yeah. He'll still introduce a woman character, maybe. Romance or not romance. So the elements are all there. But wow, the situations are very different. They're very adult. They're coming from character. They're coming from some weirdness. And it feels right because it's not the template, not heroic. It feels more like, like life because life can do anything at any moment. And that's Howard. Anything is going to happen now at any moment. So. Speaking of Westerns, have you ever watched uh, Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood? Oh, God, yeah. Several times. Oh, yeah. There yeah, you go. I, I wouldn't say you did the same story, but I occasionally was kind of thinking a little bit of that character. Yep. And that your fellow Hanlon, at least in the beginning, is kind of like, you know, I'm kind of tired of all this crap. I just want to go retire and relax. Yeah. And you know what? I'll, I'll, bet, I'll bet there's some of him in there. Yeah, I'll bet yeah. there is. I really like that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sure you're right. That's a good catch. Yeah, I'm, I'll bet he's in there. I like that. Yeah, because I mean, I, I think, you know, your story, it, it gives us a lot of the things that we look for in sword and sorcery stories traditionally, and yet mm -hmm. it has all these surprises. And uh, anyway, yeah, again, I could just gosh, sorry, but but yeah, okay. So that's, so that's how you feel like you. No, I'm you, so glad you like the book. I, I'm so glad you like the book. Oh, well, yeah, it's easy to like. Thank you for writing it. I just think, yeah, like there are points even where it got quite dark for a sword and sorcery story, I felt. But the interesting thing was, as I was reading it, I thought, you know, there was a feeling of depth to that darkness. That made me think I'm gonna keep going, mm -hmm. and not just because I'm gonna interview this guy, <laughs> but because, yeah. but because yeah. I I trust him. Yeah. You know, based on what I had read thus far up to the point of maybe about a third of the way halfway in the book, I remember it got quite dark, and I was like, hmm, is this gonna be one of those stories where everybody's a jerk, and that's all that there is to take away from it? Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. thought, no, I don't think so. I don't think so because there's obviously very careful choices being made here, and so the choice to have these very dark moments. I don't think was made recklessly. And I kept reading. No, they weren't. And that's part of why my reaction is so positive and strong, because I was rewarded for that. Good. You know, I often talk about writing in terms of when you say to someone, like, hey, check out my story, whether it's two pages or 2,000, 
it's an ask, it's mm-hmm. a request, you know, and you want to try and make that story, yes. you know, worthy of the ask. Right. And your, this book absolutely was. It was worthy of the ask of the time spent. It was worthy of the ask of, hey, there's going to be some dark stuff in here, but, you know, it serves a purpose. Thank you. And I felt it really did. Yeah. And it made the ending land so much harder because of that. So I guess that's maybe kind of how, partly how, well, yeah, you went outside the, the sort of some of the archetypical stuff more from uh, the second mm-hmm. wave. Uh, you know, yeah, he doesn't just like sling a girl over his shoulder and be like, I got the treasure. Nice. Stab a monster. You know, the end. Not in the, not at all. That's so old now. Yeah, no, that's so old now. That's so old now. Yeah. And it's kind of remarkable to me that, I mean, we keep going back to Robert E. Howard and rightfully so, because the guy was, in my mind, kind of incredible, you know, with, with what he did. And I know that's the template and I know he was a good writer, but doesn't it say something that we're still going back and referencing him? reading and rereading his books just because of that that kind of um not peripheral but surfacey kind of a we don't go back and talk about the virginian the novel that way Mm. we've moved on and there's more more westerns we've read well if if you'll allow me to connect your work directly to howard's yeah (laughs) i think the philosophizing that i found uh you know the fact that you make your character actually uh, be a man of violence who also studied poetry that's just kind of a fun touch on the surface but also deeper than the surface it is uh in both some of his dialogue and the the prose as a whole Mm -hmm. you try to get into some big ideas in a very accessible way Mm -hmm. and i think that's something that is absolutely sword and sorcery right from the the get-go with howard and that's partly why we keep coming back to him that's a very good point. That's a very, very good point. That's very astute. Yeah, I, boy, that's really nice. Thank you. Because Howard did think about these big ideas. And I confess that, that I read philosophy and I do think about the big ideas. And I have since, since high school, there were those of us who walk around thinking, what's it all for? What does it all mean? Yeah. And what's the meaning of life? Almost like a cliche. These are extraordinarily serious questions. This is philosophy, knowledge of life, wisdom of life. And when you put that in a character and have a character reflect the way that, that we do when we're looking at a sunset or yeah. when we're going through, I mean, really troublesome times in our lives, you know, the, the deaths of loved ones. I mean, I've been divorced a couple of times. I've seen people suffer through things. I mean, if you're an honest person and, and you're there with them, I mean, you got to start asking some questions. I mean, I'm, I'm just this side of turning 70. My wife is 14 years younger than I am. She's in her 50s. But we were just talking last night. We're reaching the point where our friends, when now we're on the other last half side of life. So they're having illnesses. You know, they're having to deal with health issues and stuff. And that's there's the questions of life. What have I done with my life? Was it worthwhile? Do I regret anything? I always told myself that whenever I'm on my deathbed, I want to be able to look back and say, did I make the most of what I had? Yeah. Or, or did I not? And I think that's a fair question that anyone can ask. And at any time we're free to say, like the great job quitting people, you know, recently after COVID, maybe now is the time to take a second look at your so-called career or your life or something and explore stuff you have in you that you can find yourself in 70s parlance or leave the world a better place than it was when you came in or do something creative or anything like that. Maybe you can do it. I'll say one thing about the characters in the book because they're all as real to me as possible. Even Lady Sill and, and you know, uh, these yeah, characters. Yeah. But one of the things I ask, I finished a book or I'm working on a book and I know I'm developing the characters. Could I ask an actor to take this role if we did it on the stage or on a movie or TV? Is there enough there for them to work with? So I try to use that like as a measuring rod. 
doesn't have to be profound or anything, but is there enough there in that character for them to latch on to and create, you know, person with? So that's just another thought. So, as I guess I probably made clear over-effusively, I was impressed by your writing style in uh, Sometime Lofty Towers. Yeah. One thing that stood out to me was it felt almost um, unadorned in a positive sense, you know, not overladen with simile and metaphor, yes. so that when you used either, they really landed. Mm-hmm. You know, this uh, sparse beauty in the prose truly aided the sparse beauty of the ideas and moments it was conveying. Mm. How would you say your prose style has evolved since the days of writing the first Oron book? Yeah, it, it, it has definitely evolved. I've tried to pay more and more attention to how I write. Early on, I think it was largely influenced by the pulp fiction that I read then. A lot of it that was reprinted, but also by Jack London, believe it or not. Huh. When I started writing, yeah, what I used to do, because I wanted to know how stories work. So I used to retype Jack London short stories so I could try to get in between the words in the white spaces <laughs> or whatever of, of his language try to get a feel for how stories work. So some of that is probably there, too. I've got to do that one of these days. You're not the first author I've spoken with who says, really? you know, I took an author who I liked and literally just typed out their stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's an interesting experiment. Yeah, yeah. And London style is so different from the way people write now. So I'm, I'm sure the early stuff, in fact, I know the early stuff. I've scanned in all my early Oran novels, and I'm going to clean up, you know, the, the type and, and republish them. And some of that stuff is just is just is too much. Or I tried to be too effervescent or, you know, carried it too far with the screaming or whatever. That's the bad acting. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the pulp stuff. But as I continued to write, I continued to read and I try to read as much different kind of stuff as I can. So I'm reading some modern writers and I've gone back and read some of the classics I had in college. And I'm sure all of that has affected me too. And I ended up teaching English for a while. I think that was a big influence. I mean, you want to learn something, teach it. And that reacquainted me with the English language as it had not since eighth grade. So I really started to take seriously how I'm putting words together, how I'm putting sentences together. And that had a very big effect, I think, on on my writing style. Well, I think I saw on your website, you actually have written a book about sentence construction, haven't you? Or a textbook, maybe? I did. I did. Yeah. What happened was that when I stopped writing and I dropped out for a while and I admitted, I, you know, I had that quasi nervous breakdown or depression, whatever. Mm. I got to get away from this stuff. It's driving me nuts. I actually thought about studying to be a court stenographer. My friend Fred Adams, his wife made a living as a court stenographer. And I looked into it and it's like, first of all, there aren't many guys involved. So it would kind of stand out in that way. I guess that would help the job prospects. The other thing, is being practical about it, the other thing is that I would be taking down testimony of true crime in, you know, courthouse hearing room. So there's tons of good stuff there for stories, you know, so let's be practical about this. But when I applied to join the class, and it was a, a class that was being done in, in Cleveland, Ohio, the guy who ran the school said to me, we actually need someone to teach English, you know, and I had my, my BA anyway. Would you want to teach English? So I've always wondered how I would work as a teacher, and I, and I love the language, you know. Let me give it a shot. So I stepped into it. I went ahead and did it. So I taught for about two and a half years, and what I discovered in the Cleveland school system was that these kids are coming in, and they might as well not have gone to English in high school at all. Mm. It, it was so bad. Yeah. And they weren't paying attention anyway because they're kids in high school. So I would start with the textbook we had, and they were they would like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
remind us of what a noun is, you know, remind us of what a clause is or a phrase. It's like, well, yeah. you're not wrong if you weren't paying attention. So I started creating handouts for them. And it worked. I mean, I tried to engage my class as much as I could. And at some point they said, show us how to diagram sentences. And I said, I don't remember how to diagram sentences. <laughs> you go to the used bookstore and find, find some old English grammars that showed how to diagram. So we did. We ended up diagramming sentences. And I would try whatever I could, you know, to try to get them. It's like, well, if this visual thing, diagramming doesn't work for you, let's try this. Just cross out all the prepositional phrases. Now you got the core of the sentence. Do that. So I would try everything I could think of. So one of the textbook salesmen used to come around and we were talking and he said, you know, we're always on the lookout for, for new textbooks. I said, really? He said, sure. And I said, well, I've been doing these handouts for my class to get them up to speed so that we can use your book. He said, oh, okay. So I gave him some of the handouts and the word came back that, yeah, they might be interested if you would try to write it in English. So I wrote, it's very basic English grammar, syntax, but it starts out with, here's a noun, here's a verb. And built all the way up through the clauses and phrases and, and everything. Do you find that maybe that made you more thoughtful in your choices uh, when constructing sentences after? Absolutely. 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 I really started paying attention. Because you do that with English. Now I'll go back and read some great poetry. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I'll go back and read some Shakespeare. Oh, now I cut, it opens it up a little more because you've really gotten down into the, the skeleton and the meat of it and stuff. So I have English grammar books here that I've, I've been buying since. I wrote mine, and some of them are very old, and my daughter can't figure it out at all, but I will sit and I will read English grammar textbooks like for entertainment. So <laughs> no one does that. No one does that. <laughs> hey, man, whatever you take pleasure from reading, not going to judge you. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, you be you. <laughs> So, uh, here, we should probably tie this off pretty soon. I, I worry I'm wearing out your voice, but I just yeah, enjoy yeah, hearing what you have to say. Here. Thank you. I just want to sort of tie it off by asking, you know, you came back to writing, and I'm very happy you did. Mm. And so, essentially, you you know, you've had a long career, continue to have it. It's not, not past tense yet. Through good times and bad. Yeah, yeah. I read a neat blog post about this on your site, but I'd love to hear you say it. And for the listener, of course, what has kept you writing? I guess the answer is the desire to see what comes next. Once you're in the habit of putting down the words, let's see what happens next. When I was younger, it seemed like for every idea that I got for a story, I would get two more while I was in the middle of writing that first one. So that was very interesting. And the ideas will come. Who was it? Who was it? I think Virginia Woolf, someone of her diaries, was like, scenes will form. And that will happen. So scenes will form characters, you know, and it starts to sound quasi-mystical. But they, they do take on a life of their own, and they want voice given to them. I'm not writing as quickly now as I did when I was younger. I was on fire when I started out. I really wanted to be a writer. And I could just put a piece of paper in the typewriter and just start going. I don't know where that came from. It was, it was in me. I, mean, I just really wanted to be. And I read everything I could. I wanted to write everything that I could. So that's the way I was then. After dropping out and then getting back into it, I found that there was like muscle memory for being a writer and scenes will form in characters. So I would start writing again, but I was typing more slowly, but it was thoughtful and a little slower, but with more care, very much aware of the words and what I was doing and stuff. So 
I never want to lose it again. Mm. I don't ever again want to stop writing because I realized that I lost something when I did that, and it was not fair to me. I overreacted because I couldn't become a big commercial successful writer, which I thought that's what I wanted to be. So it's kind of come around full circle, and I am becoming, I am a better writer than I was then. I want to continue to be a good writer. And some of the stories in Tales of Atlama and the novels, Sometime Lofty Towers, I think I proved to myself that I can continue to do good work and that I should continue to try to try to do that. So I don't prejudge, you know, I don't deliberately start out to write a good story, you know, whatever, just start putting the words down, let the characters come. And I never again want to tell myself I've, I've stopped writing. I deeply regret having done that. So I was gone for a long time. So I guess that's the answer. It's a great answer. Thank you for sharing it with us. So, okay. So if someone listened to this interview, which I'm probably going to split into two parts. <laughs> I, I'm just, man, I'm just, we're, we're, this is a gab fest. We both like to talk. It is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought this might happen and, you know, I'm fine with it. If you're fine okay. with that, I'm fine with it. <laughs> my, my, my wife and daughter get tired of hearing me talk. They just roll their eyes like, oh, all you do is talk. And it's like, oh, man. Ah, uh, well, you should get a podcast then. <laughs> Apparently, apparently, I joke that my partner yeah, doesn't yeah. have to hear me talk about my stuff as much now. <laughs> I talk about it to other people <laughs> exactly. on the podcast. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. See, yeah, no. But, you know, let's say if someone listened to this interview and is thinking, as they should, yeah, I, you know what? I didn't know about this David C. Smith guy before, but I want to try his stuff out. Which of your works might you recommend people start with? Where's a good first David C. Smith book? I actually would not go back to the early Zebra stuff or anything. Unless you are a fan of sword and sorcery fiction, because that was from back in the day. But I've turned out a number of things since getting back into writing. And I have to say, give a shout out to Bob McLean at Pulp Hero Press. He's the guy who contacted me back in 2018 to write the biography of Robert E. Howard that I wrote, the literary biography of Howard that I wrote. He's the man who, who planted that seed. And he's the guy who said, would you want to write a book about writing sword and sorcery fiction so it's due to bob that right you've got that uh that's, that's being worked on right now right that's being worked on right now yeah i'm going to call it writing sword and sorcery fiction bob at pulp hero press published a number of, of things of mine all of which kind of broke the mold of what people probably think when they think of dave smith bob has since stopped publishing a lot of fiction he's still publishing non-fiction hence the book i'm doing on sword and sorcery fiction but he published a, another book very dear to my heart, called The Bright Star. And I told you I love silent movies, and this one is about the mysterious disappearance in 1920 of a silent movie star in Chicago. So I was able to build a really strong female character and have her be an early producer and star when most movies in America were made in Chicago. There wasn't a Hollywood yet. So I was able to explore all that. And it's a good mystery, too. It got a good review on um, Kirkus Reviews, I'm happy to say. And nobody knows it exists, you know? So, so oh. it's called Bright Star. Okay, well, I'll make a point of linking to that Thank in you. the uh, description of the episode so anybody can just click on it easy peasy. Thank you. And there's Tales of Atlama, which is Sword and Sorcery. There's one called Dark Muse, which I'm kind of proud of, too. And I actually got the idea from a letter... From an article in an old, old issue of Writer's Digest magazine where editors would get threats from readers or from writers, you know, 
I sent you my manuscript. Mm-hmm. You didn't like it, so you better watch out for yourself. You know, all these insanity. So I, I rolled this one over in my mind, and I thought, what if we had a writer, uh, a serial killer? Now, is he a serial killer who's a writer, or is he a writer who's a serial killer? Mm-hmm. But there's a young book editor in Chicago who's looking for the next great American author, and he finds it in these anonymous short stories sent by this guy, and he brings him to tears. It's like, this guy's such a great writer, but I don't know who he is. Well, we as readers know that this guy is viciously murdering people, and that's how he gets his creative high, and then he writes great fiction. And then, of course, he tries to pull the the, the editor into his little world here. So... Friends of mine love that book, too. It's, it's good work. So I've tried to move beyond just the boundaries of, of sword and sorcery mm-hmm. and seemed to work. seems to have worked. And, and I've been able to experiment more with how I write. And yeah, Dark Muse, uh, Tales of Atluma, Bright Star, Sometime Lofty Towers. I would say, depending on the description I just gave, see if one of those is of interest mm-hmm. to you. But you can still find the Red Sonja novels. Those are still perennially selling. They may be republished, too. Oh, I'd have to have a look. I did find them on Abe Books. You can find secondhand copies. Still oh, yeah. Readily. No, they're there. They're there. And Luke Lieberman in L.A., who owns the rights to that red Sonya portrayal, the, the, the chainmail bikini Sonya, as opposed to the medieval story that Howard wrote. He's shopping around having these books reprinted. So that oh, okay. will happen sooner or later, we think, too. So, yeah, you can still find those on Abe Books. Orin and Shadow and, and Fall the First World, they're still out there. Yeah, there's more Dave Smith out there than I actually realized. I mean, I, I did turn off our copy over the years. Well, to make life easy, like I say, I will link to everything you've mentioned to the best of my ability with oh, the secondhand you. guys in the show description. So, listener, just click around there, man. You'll find some Dave C. Smith and probably you'll enjoy some of it. So, yeah. Okay. Well, again, this has been lovely. Oliver, this, this, this is delightful, man. I had a good time. This will be the first two-parter I've ever done. I, I, I think I'm going to have to oh, chop my. this into two halves, but that's okay. I'm totally I worth it. apologize or not, but I hope it's worthwhile. No, no. I, I should be thanking you for being so generous with your time. And yes, I mean it. Thank you. Well, uh, so yeah, all right. Well, thanks, David. And you know what? When that book on writing sword and sorcery is yeah. uh, coming on out, by all means, please come back to the show, and I'd love to talk with you about it and help. Oh, I'd it. love to. Oh, I'd love to very much. So yeah, yeah, I'll get a copy to you then, and, and I'll let you know when it comes out. All right, man. I will set you free from this interview. Thank you so much. No, that's fine. Thank you again, though, for inviting me. I had a great time, and take care, man. So I'm Writing a Novel features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading over to soimrunningandnovel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, coffee, PayPal, all that good stuff. Thanks for hanging out with me and David, and I'll see you soon. Thank you.